Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Klaus Trusted on the line. Klaus, how are you? It's a dangerous question to ask a Scandinavian, Michael, because they'll just give you half an hour answer and you'll be just as depressed as they are. But with that said, I'm fine. <laughs> That's great. Great to have you on the show. Looking forward to this conversation. So share with the audience a little bit about you and you know some of the amazing work that you do. I think that the most interest, or there are a couple of interesting things about me. One of them is that I'm one of the co-founders and the director of a place called the College of Extraordinary Experiences, which is a little bit interesting. Uh, I do some work as a coach at McKinsey, and then I'm one of those rare individuals that not just built a company and crashed it, but was dumb enough to do it without a limited liability company. So one and a half year ago, I stood with a little over a million US dollars in personal debt and needed to figure out how do I get rid of that? You're not alone in that. I hear a lot of stories of, of people that uh, were on the wrong side of uh, business growth, where it just all of a sudden didn't grow, and next thing you know, they're looking at you know seven figure or even eight figure debt, and going, "All right, how am I going to dig out of this?" And they do. Uh, and so, you know, how you know, what were some of the things when you when you realized that you were at that that level? Um, you know, what were some of the things that you did after you know not you know swearing and all that kind of good stuff? I'm sure there was an element <laughs> of that too, and and you know maybe uh, some pieces of property were thrown about a little bit, but I'm um, just curious as to, you know, you know, after all of that and, you know, the initial shock of, okay, what's going on here, you know, what were some of the things that you did to kind of help dig out? So the first thing I did after all the, the uh, why did I end myself in this mess was to think I need to be in a different business because I tried, I built the world's largest live action role play company and saw it crash uh, into flames. But I'd for many years, my goal was to get, if I could make like $5,000 a month, I would be happy doing what I love. That would be more than enough for me. And that never happened. And now suddenly I had to make like three times that per month just to keep creditors at bay. And that's even with very nice and, and uh, patient creditors. So I needed to change to a different arena. And I found out that some of the stuff you learn by being a crazy experienced design entrepreneur is actually re useful in the world of business if you learn how to speak that language. And that's what I've been doing ever since. It's the crazy ideas that people somehow gravitate, which is f funny in a way because a lot of business experience, you think, okay, they like things to be, you know, set in stone, fits in the square box nicely. We don't want to upset things, but it's the crazy, innovative, let's try this, let's do this, let's go this way that you know, gets people along and they go, yeah, because I think deep down all of us want to go and expand and, and get out of this box that we get put in, or we, in many cases, we put ourselves in and dig out and go, okay, what do we need to do? How do we do something extraordinary? How do we do something that is innovative? How do we do something that's going to make a dent in, in the world and all of that? So it's amazing that you've, you've come up with that. 
No, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and I've always worked with innovation one way or the other with kind of pushing the envelope and doing things differently. But now suddenly I went from innovating on my own projects primarily and for clients secondarily to now being much more of a consultant, keynote speaker, that sort of thing, innovation strategist, come out and do things for other people. And, and what you say is it is very, very correct that people want – People want change they, or they want innovation. They just don't want change. But what excites them is change. So it's, it's, it's a kind of weird dual space to be in, but that's also part of the fun. Yeah, it's, um, they, they don't want to change, but they want things to be different, which is always, you know, like, okay, how's that work? You know, but, but so when you're working with organizations, especially those, and, you know, I've seen, you know, the roster of companies that you've worked with, you know, some of those companies in the list, it's like, yeah, they, they tend to do things innovatively, but there are other organizations I looked on the list. I'm like, my observation for those organizations is maybe not as much. So when you go into an organization, you know, how, how do you get those resistant type organizations to say, okay, let's, let's do something innovative. So the first thing I do always is I ask, what is the biggest change you can do tomorrow without asking anybody's permission? And sometimes that's, I can move the trash can to a different place in the, in the office, or I can change the font on the website. And sometimes it's, I can spend uh, $50 million without oversight. It's more often the, the former rather than the latter, though, because one thing that stops people when thinking innovation is they, they come up with something they want to change, and then they realize to do that, they need all sorts of money, buy-in, time, et cetera, acceptance, and they don't have that, so they go back to zero. It's a little bit like waking up in the morning and thinking, I'd like to totally renovate my house. And because I know I can't do that because we don't have the, the money and the time and the skills for it, let's just not do anything today. And then you do the same thing tomorrow, where if you just started by saying, maybe I could paint the bathroom, maybe I could rearrange the shelves in the living room, maybe I could throw out some old pots and pans and free up a, a locker or two, maybe I could just clean the dishwasher, then you're getting somewhere. So, so part of it is teaching people to think of innovation as a thousand small cuts instead of one big machete chopping off the head, tempting as it is. Yeah, everybody looks at the big mountain and they go, okay, we need to change this mountain into something else. It's like, no, you just, you know, little innovations, things in there. And all of a sudden you get this wonderful thing called momentum. And, and you get this confidence because any initiative, any new project, any new thing, a lot of people are really hesitant because they're doing something that they may have never done before. And that throws us off as adults. As kids, not so much. You know, we no. kind of go, we're like, okay, why not? Let's go. You know, and we'll try anything. It's like climb up to the top of that thing that's like 30 feet high and jump on the ground. Sure, let's do it. You know, as an adult, we're going, yeah, that's a broken hip for sure, at least, if not something else. Like, I'm not doing that. But it's we, we, we lose that uh, childlike um, desire to discover. And, and new you lose that. I agree. And, and we also have a problem with nuance and with understanding that if you take a kid, for example, you take a nine-year-old kid and you hit them in the face. I'm not saying you should do that, but I'm saying if you take or another kid hits them in the face and you say, describe the pain on a scale of one to 10, then most kids will say like 11, 11, 11 is the worst thing ever. 
But if you take a kid that goes to Taekwondo or boxing or karate or something where you regularly get hit in the face by other kids, then they'll say it was a five bordering on a six or it was a seven. No, wait, it was it was an eight because they'll be able to look at that discomfort in a nuanced way instead of just looking at black and white like it's not white so it must be black but these these tones of gray are what makes people who do a lot of innovation work make them better at kind of figuring out what's the actual pain here how big is it and is it worth it instead of just saying there's pain or no pain because of course that's not how reality is you know, one of the things i noticed too going back to what i said a little bit earlier was when you get that momentum and all of a sudden you face a new challenge or a new endeavor or whatever. Sometimes we forget, and the pain analogy just shared, you know, ties into this, where when you have the confidence of being able to adapt and do different things, we can look back on, okay, we were able to accomplish this. We were able to recover from that pain. We were able to recover from these things and now look at us and we're fine. And I, I think it's, uh, a lot of people, when they go and look at a new thing, they, they use the black and white thing. It's like, here it is. It's like, but yeah, but we've done something similar to this and it was fine. And I think people, you know, they get kind of tunnel visioned on some things and they don't recognize, well, no, there's, we have experiences here that's going to help us with this particular endeavor, no matter what it is. And and on to build on that, because that I completely agree and very well put, to build on that, we also forget that we learn. So we look at a new challenge and say, do I have the skill set or the confidence or the, the network or the, the budget is often a factor, especially in corporations, to overcome this problem where the reality is it doesn't matter if you know it today. What matters is do you know it in two weeks or in three months or when you actually need to do it? And, and ironically, you mentioned kids. I have a daughter who's almost three. And if there's one thing that's incredibly clear from having a kid, and, and pe- anybody who's been even near kids will know this, whether they have them or not, is that once you learn how to deal with the kid, then the kid grows and changes and you need to kind of start over. But if you go fussing too much about the long term, then you're never going to get anywhere. And nobody's sitting in the waiting room waiting for their first baby to be born saying, what are we going to do if she gets divorced? It's like, what, how do we, let's deal with breastfeeding first, right? Let's teach her how to sleep first. And then maybe down the line, we'll look at what happens with relationship guidance. And maybe one day our daughter will get married and then divorced. We'll deal with that then. But when it comes to companies, it's a little bit like somebody saying, well, we should actually expand and do something. Oh, but do you have all the answers right now, Jack? Do you? Do you? Because if not, then you can forget it. And that, to me, that's just bizarre. It's bizarre that that in some parts of our lives, we are confident knowing that we will grow as part of the journey. But when it comes to our companies, so many are so scared that if they don't know it right now, they'll never learn. And, and got to tell you, I don't get that. Yeah, it's that, you know, the amygdala telling us, you know, freeze and we're not able to do anything. And I remember I worked in healthcare for about a dozen years and there was this one doctor that was part of a lot of committees, uh, government funded type of situation. And I was on a lot of committees with this doctor and everybody else was like, well, we don't know this. We don't know this. We should we hold off on this. And he would stand up and say, we have enough information. It's good enough. Go. We can adjust while we're moving. And that's a big thing a lot of organizations forget too, is as you're moving down somewhere and you're like, okay, this isn't working. Well, you have motion, so you'll be able to adjust on the fly 
uh, it, it's a lot easier to change something if you're moving than if you're not doing anything and you're trying to change something, you know, two weeks down the road, you're not there yet. But if you're two weeks down the road and you've been moving forward, then you can adjust accordingly. Bingo. Bingo. I, I, your doctor friend, big fan, big fan already. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he's an incredible physician and sat on a lot of um, committees. Uh, was head of, and I'm based in Toronto, and he was head of uh, the primary care uh, group of physicians in the entire province of Ontario for a bit. You know, and you know, obviously a lot different than you know the people that have followed him on some things. But yeah, because he was one of those. Let's stop talking. Let's start doing. Um, we can sit here and talk all day and all night, but he's more of a, let's diagnose the situation. That's where his doctor training came in big time. Let's diagnose the situation based on the information we have. This is the treatment plan we're going to go with. Same thing with initiatives or rolling out new endeavors. He, he approached it that way and uh, inspiring. Loved you know the opportunity to work with him from time to time because I knew that, okay, this is going to be a committee that's actually going to do something. This is nice. I like actually motion. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. No, so, I love that. I, I love that. Go, go on. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so for, you know, of all the organizations you've worked with and all of that, I don't want you to single out any one, but what are some common traits that you see for the ones that are more successful in being innovative and doing, you know, the, and seeing what you see when you go into that organization to bring them to the next levels of, of where they want to go? So the successful ones have a couple of things in common. And, and I mean, one of the, the fun things about working at, at high levels is you get to work with some pretty interesting people, interesting companies. One of the annoying things is that everything's bloody NDA'd. And then sometimes you can kind of skirt that by saying, I worked with a big Swedish furniture retailer. Um, and then we kind of know what it is. But it means that I, I can't give too specific. But what I can say is that some of those that they have in common are one, they have innovators spread across the organization, innovation allies, you might call them, people who are not directly in touch with a thing, but who still kind of help, help move it along just because your doctor friend, even if he wasn't on a committee, but he was just somebody who'd be in a hallway or be at lunch with a colleague, he'd probably also there when they were complaining about this new initiative and they didn't have enough information, then he'd say, just go for it. Just do it. Try it. Let's make it happen, even if he wasn't directly on the committee. So innovation allies is one thing that you, you need to have people in an organization who kind of want to try out new stuff. And the second, this is really, really crucial. There's the, the term of psychological, if not psychological safety, then psychological comfort. This idea that you can come to your boss or to your colleagues with something, with an idea, with a complaint, with, with a complication and expect to be treated nicely. That if you want to innovate, then you need to be able to come and say, what if we did it differently? Because if not, then you're only going to have the top, top people and you're going to be, you're going to be dependent on their intuition, on their insights. And if you're like one CEO and a 5,000 person company, well, then the CEO can be brilliant. You can have an Elon Musk CEO, but Tesla would not have gotten to where it did because of Elon Musk alone. It also has gotten there because he's good at saying, what do you think should be changed? What do you, what are your thoughts? And then listening, not always implementing, but listening. And that's pretty damn critical is, is creating that culture of you can come up with things and not find them and not get them just like smashed into your face again. 
Yeah, I, I have a pretty good idea uh, what that uh, particular furniture company is. Um, my 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 my, <laughs> con- my condo is filled with their products and innovative. Just in the you know the diagrams alone, and going how in the world by turning this little screw here will fasten you know four levels of this cabinet. How in the world does that work? And you know it's engineering marvel. Quite frankly, it's like you. It's I. I'm a. I'm a big fan of their their stuff. And uh, you know we're where I'm at in Toronto. We're currently in a, a lockdown type of situation, so can't even walk in that particular store either. But it brings to mind uh, another story real quick of of. Apple after Steve Jobs passed, you know, initially, you know, everyone's going, "Uh oh, this is going to be the end." Well, you know, they're a trillion-dollar organization now, and Steve's been gone for for some time. It's because I, I think even in his own special way, and Tim Cook's way, and all the engineers and everybody there, there's obviously a lot of dialogue having gifted people and and seeking their guidance and their advice on different things and and organizations across the globe listen to your people they see things that the c-suite can't see ask you know and i agree with you on you know elon musk not only with tesla but with spacex and boring and all the other endeavors that he's got going on um he's reaching out and asking people, okay, what about this? And what about this? And they're seeing different things. And that's why, you know, it, it's, it, it's created a movement, quite frankly, because, you know, I think about, you know, General Motors, for example, and they're, you know, migrating to being all EV cars, you know, in the next decade or so. Well, they've had, you know, EV cars out for several years, didn't sell well, no one really cared, quite frankly, but Tesla launched it. Next thing you know, you've got everybody else playing catch up, trying to get their vehicles out. It's like, but GM had a vehicle out before the first Tesla hit the ground. It's like, but no one really cared. It's just, it's all in deliverables. It's all in input. It's all in having right people and, and, and seeking their input. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. So, and, and a lot of it's also, I find of, looking not at the core problem, but at the the other, the stuff you can fix. Somebody asked me not too long ago, said, so Klaus, you're this innovation specialist. So let's say a water company comes to you and says, how do we get more pressure into our water pipes? Like, how are you going to solve that, Mr. Innovation Guy? And they were obviously, they let's just say there was a little bit of hostility towards my <laughs> expertise in that question, but also an openness to be persuaded. And I said, you know what? I wouldn't go in there and pretend I know anything about water pipes and about pressure because I don't. What I could do is I could say, how can you hold better meetings? How can you create better documentation? How can you have more fun? How can you do better ideation sessions? How can you create a stronger culture? How can you make it attract more interesting people and get those ideas out there and communicate them to the people who make the decisions? Then I'm pretty sure that if we do all that, then the people who know about water pressure will figure out ways to make to make better pipes. And then suddenly it was like, oh, oh yeah, because our meetings kind of suck and we have some internal communication problems and like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because it's it's very often it's it's easy to look at a problem and say, we need to tackle it head on. <clears throat> but if you're going to do that, then that's tough where there's always a ton of side problems, a ton of side issues or opportunities that you can challenge and that you can work on where you can make like massive inroads or you can try to do the core thing and make it like 
a tiny bit better, but that usually requires deep industry knowledge. So, so one of my biggest innovation tips for anyone is look at not your core stuff, because that's hard. You're probably already pretty good at that. Look at all the other things around it, because there might be massive gains to be made there, and they will indirectly affect your core business. Totally agree on that. So COVID-19, organizations across the globe have been impacted in a variety of different ways, not just with supply chain, but where are people working? Okay, we never thought we would be working remotely. Now we're completely remote and all of that. Plenty of opportunities for innovation. And my hope is organizations are taking the opportunity to look at doing things with more innovation in mind than what they were doing prior to the pandemic starting. Uh, I've heard a lot of people refer to this as the great reset. It's a great opportunity for organizations to, you know, look at their operations, not just the core stuff, like you said, but you know, those opportunities. Okay. Here we are, you know, clean slate. What, what should we do? So uh, of the organizations you've worked with, you know, what are some things that they've been doing in an innovative way during this pandemic that's going to set them up for some definitely great success, you know, once this pandemic finally is behind us. So one of the things that I've seen, and, and this has luckily benefited myself a lot, so I'm, I'm very grateful that this has been a trend, even in the middle of all this terrible stuff, is that because of COVID, because of the new remote working digital reality we live in, it's harder to execute because it's harder it's harder to get people in the room. It's harder to align. It's harder to sometimes like get to the office or the factory or, or the place where you want to go. That's, that's become harder for many people, but it has never been easier to get inspired, to get new ideas, to get new ways of looking at things. And an example, I do a lot of innovation keynotes. That's one of my sources of income and also something I do for free and because I think it's interesting. Now, before, if I was going to do for, let's say, the city of Toronto, if I was going to do an innovation keynote on new forms of government for the city of Toronto, it would mean somebody would have to find me. Then we'd have to talk about fees. Then we'd have to talk about plane tickets and hotels and all that sort of thing. And it would probably end up costing quite a bit of money and taking quite a bit of time to get me in a room with 10 people, 10 relevant people and scheduling all that sort of tough stuff to get me into that room where today they call me and they say, hi, Klaus, when's your next availability for an hour? We want you to give a 45-minute keynote with a 15-minute Q&A and we're getting together people from uh, our core group, but also some people from Vancouver and some people from Quebec. And we even got somebody, the mayor of Montevideo, who just happens to know the mayor of Quebec and wanted to listen in on this session. And I don't even have to put on pants to do that. I just have to put on a nice shirt, get in front of my camera and deliver my stuff and talk to them. And of my life, that's going to take me one and a half hours, plus minus a little invoicing, a little talking and maybe preparing if it's a specific thing. And for them, it's going to take them an hour of their time. And it's going to take them a minimum budget compared to what it would be beforehand. And suddenly they'll have four times as many people in the room and they're going to have access to ideas that they never would have had before because then they would have just gone with some guy from Toronto who they've worked with before because he's cheap, he's good, he's entertaining, and he can be there on Thursdays when they have time. So it's, it's never been easier to reach out to people you would never have talked to. I've taught university classes in Bangkok one day and California the next. 
Now, I could have done that before the pandemic, but nobody was defaulting to that. Nobody was even suggesting it, even myself. Now it's become the default. And suddenly you can set up a business tomorrow living in Toronto where you are serving South African dog owners. That's your core audience. And it's almost as easy as serving people in Toronto because you can't go out anyway. That's different. Yeah, it, that is definitely different. And it opens up the eyes and opportunities for organizations. Again, you know, the logistics of setting up an event or a training session is pricey. You know, the plane tickets, the hotel, you know, all the things that come with that, you know, the, you know, the food, you know, the, you know, when they have a big conference, for example, even the virtual conferences, it's like, okay, they didn't have to order a thousand stale croissants, you know, it's like, we don't have to order that, you know, so they've saved money on that aspect of it, which means they can, you know, pour that into their technology or, you know, compensating the speakers more because they're not tying it into the coffee and croissants. So there's a lot of wonderful opportunities that this pandemic has created. I know it's not fun. I know it's not pleasant. I know people have died, job losses, you name it. I mean, there's a laundry list of things that have been really difficult with this situation, but there have been great opportunities as well. And I, I, I encourage people to look for those opportunities. And I'm thrilled that uh, you were able to do a talk in Bangkok and a talk in California. Yeah, you could have done that before as well, but the, uh, even being in person, but it would have been a really long flight and jet <laughs> lag. And you'd be like, who am I? Why am I here? You know, it's like, you know, you know, good morning. Great to be in Chicago. You're in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that. You just kind of get up, you, you throw on a shirt, pants optional and away you go. So Klaus, I've enjoyed our conversation today. Where can people find out more about you and this incredible work you do? So first of all, likewise, second, they can find me on KlausWasta.com where I live and breathe. And also, I'm one of those rare people who, for better and worse, there's only one of me. So if you Google my name, you will find a lot of stuff. <laughs> and it's a rabbit hole, and I'm not sure you want to go down it, but there's only one me. There's only one Klaus Hostel. And that means if you want to find me on LinkedIn, I'm easy to find. If I have a solid digital footprint. So, so if you want to hit me up, then I'm not hard to find if you have my name. That's awesome, and I'll have you know, the information in the show notes. And obviously, I you know did the same when I you know first uh, you know, found out about you, and like, oh wow, there's there's a lot of stuff here, and it's like, yep, I don't have to. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is him because there's only one. It's like, yep, 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 that's him, that's him. So, Klaus, I've enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate you and this amazing work that you do. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of The Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.